somebody uh, sent me this article not too long ago, um, kind of caught my attention. Um, it was about, it's kind of this uh, survey that was done of uh, schools throughout the country, high schools and uh, English classes, what, what their kids are reading today uh, for literature. So the most commonly read books in high school, essentially, is what it was about reading. Um, they had this big list. Um, I guess they surveyed schools, teachers, English departments all over the country and kind of compiled what they were all doing and requiring, kind of put it together. Um, so you got this list. Um, and they had just a couple of observations about the readings or the required readings. One is that uh, they kind of vary. I mean, we're not all reading the same books everywhere. Um, geography is kind of a factor. Different books are read in different parts of the country. Um, kind of a cultural reasons. Certain books in the, in the Midwest would go over better, be more well received than on the East Coast or the West Coast. Uh, they also said that it, the, the lists vary by, kind of connect, similar to the first point, um, economics. Rich kids, kids in uh, very wealthy school districts, some of the books they read are different than kids in the city, inner city kids. Um, but really the main part, the main takeaway from this article was Despite the variance, the list is pretty much the same everywhere. You got those exceptions. They're not identical. Every English department and every high school obviously isn't going to be completely the same. But pretty much it is. It's pretty universal. Um, and I saw the list. That's really what I was kind of curious about. Uh, most of the books on the list were ones that I had to read 40 years ago, um, or at least a lot of them were. They also talked about some more recent ones that have made the list, uh, that have become sort of, I guess, like more modern classics. They talked about The Color Purple, I think that was written in the, in the early 80s. That's a pretty standard required book now. This other book, um, The Giver, I've seen that, um, and I've, I haven't read it, but I've kind of, they made a movie about it a couple of years ago. That was about, I think in the early 90s, that was written. But most of the books, all well, the plays on the list, um, I knew them. I didn't read them all, but I certainly knew about them. Um, these would be the, I think more or less the top 10. The Great Gatsby, Huckleberry Finn, 1984, Catcher in the Rye, and then they mentioned Shakespeare, certainly, uh, Macbeth, Julius Caesar, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Animal Farm, Of Mice and Men, The Scarlet Letter, I mean, they're all, they're all familiar, right? I mean, 
probably did read most of them. Um, but there was one book that was just most popular, most assigned, most read, most loved on the part of both teachers and maybe more importantly, students. Like this book is the most well-received of them all. You guess which one? To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, they interviewed teachers in this article and they just said, it's just consistently the most popular. It's the least challenging, like the challenge to get kids to read. Like that's a battle in and of itself. This is the one, if you can get them to start, they say to they start to read the beginning of Mockingbird, more often than not, you got them. Like they keep reading. Um, they say that just the feedback, the discussions, the reflections are just the best when it has to do with that book. I mean, I remember, uh, I get it. I mean, I, I loved that book. And I also remember struggling with, and they mentioned this in this article, just, you know, Shakespeare, just the, the these and the thous and not quite understanding what they're saying. Like that was just a, that was just getting past that was so tough. Kind of old English, very formal. The Mockingbird was just, well, what was it? Like, what is it? What is it about that story that's just so kind of universal, so, so loved? Um, I mean, is it, it's almost like, a, like this like primal story. Like, it's almost kind of biblical in a way, like just good versus evil. Integrity and ignorance, courage, cowardice. It Maybe part of it is because it's kind of the story is told through the eyes of, of a kid. So you just, you're, when you're a kid yourself, you're reading the book at 14 or 15 and it's, it's sort of being narrated by this kid. Maybe it's just Atticus Finch, this hero. Maybe it's just that he's such a concrete example of how we all should be. And we know that, <laughs> like we know that, like it kind of is primal, like we know it in our soul, like he's the way to be. You know, the American Film Institute named Atticus Finch, and this was the movie, the greatest movie hero of the 20th century. Think about that, of all the the movie character, hero characters there are. And Atticus Finch was voted the greatest hero of them all. 
Gregory Peck. It's a big hit on Broadway. In 2006, librarians in Britain, in England, ranked To Kill a Mockingbird ahead of the Bible as a book that every adult should read before they die. Not sure if I'd go that far, but that doesn't it? It kind of almost parallels the gospel. It's almost like a, it's almost like another, it's like a parable almost. So what is it? What is it about that story, whether it's the, the novel or the movie or the play? I wonder, like, do we just, do we see ourselves in those characters? Who we are? Or who we wish we were? Like the power of fear, like the, the, the ugly power of like ignorance. Courage, like courage to confront corrupt power. Refusal to compromise truth. Having the will to be ridiculed or ostracized for your principles. I mean, it's just Atticus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus before Pilate. It's Pilate before the crowds. It's like the best and worst of what we're capable of. And I don't know, maybe Harper Lee, when she wrote that book, it just, she just had this, she, she took kind of just these timeless types, these characters, and just kind of weaved it into a great story. And it just speaks to us kind of forever. I wonder, is it just that when we, when we hear that story, watch that movie, like it's, it's the best and the worst of what we're capable of. And we know it. It's Atticus Finch, and it's an ignorant mob. Sometimes we're one and sometimes we're the other. But it's Lent. And we don't need Lent to go this route, but this is definitely something to do during Lent. And it's this more Atticus and less mob. We need more Atticus and less mob. You know, how long will it be? It's gonna happen. I'm sure this is gonna happen, maybe in the next couple of days. 
before we, we hear about a Russian soldier who's in Ukraine, who's gonna say enough. He's gonna stop fighting. Because he's just gonna be, he's gonna continue to witness this evil. And finally he's gonna say, no, I'm not, no more. He'll refuse an order, truth to power. He'll stand up, he'll stand up to some officer and he'll say no. And he'll probably pay a price. Like he'll probably pay a terrible price. But some Russian's gonna do it. Some Russian soldier's gonna stand up to Pilate. And he's gonna become Atticus Finch. I remember my first parish in West Hempstead, St. Thomas the Apostle. I had a funeral for a uh, wonderful guy. He was a longtime parishioner and a beloved guy. Big family, had a bunch of kids. I think he was, I'd say he was in his mid-80s when he died. He was at mass every day. In fact, his nephew was a priest, so I was, I was on the altar, I was just concelebrating. And I knew this guy as a parishioner, and, and I kind of loved him, but hearing just hearing and watching the nephew and the, the family just, like, man, what a great life this guy lived. He was kind of like an Atticus Finch. One of his sons gave the eulogy, and uh, he talked about To Kill a Mockingbird. He talked about the movie. Uh, he referenced the movie, and I had never seen the movie at that point. Like I said, I read the book, but I never seen the movie. And he talked about a scene right toward the end when um, the verdict has just been read. And Atticus lost the case this falsely accused, obviously innocent black man has been found guilty, and he's not, like, at all. But in the fear and ignorance of this kind of evil place, an evil time, he's convicted. So the scene in the movie, he's, you know, the nephew and at the funeral is describing it. And he kind of made a connection just to his father, the way his father lived this sort of honorable life of integrity. And he talked about that scene where it's just they're devastated. You just can't believe that this guy has been judged guilty. Nobody in the courtroom believes he's guilty. And everybody kind of disperses, and Gregory Peck is kind of putting, up, putting his papers together, and he's just devastated. He's trying to encourage 
the man who's just been found guilty and talking about an appeal. And he just looks so beaten down, this African-American guy. And everybody's left the courtroom, but up top, it's almost like a, you know, almost kind of like a choir loft type thing. All the, uh, the African-American community, the friends and family of this man are still up top. And they look more beaten down than Atticus. And he starts to walk out of the courthouse, Atticus does, and Atticus's kids are up there with the black people. And they all start to stand up. It's a very powerful scene. They all, in silence, they don't say anything, they just all stand up. And he starts to walk out. And then the, uh, the African-American, I guess he's the minister, he says to Atticus's daughter, is it Scout, is that the girl? Scout, I think? Says, uh, stand up. Your father's passing by. Well, at that funeral in West Hempstead, when they wheeled him out, everybody stood up as he was being, as he was passing by. Hey, this Lent, as we begin, let's pursue that example. More Atticus, less mob. More courage, less fear. More Jesus, less sin.